You know, it used to be before PowerPoint for 30 years or more was preaching that sometimes I would change my subject from there to here. Or even once I got up here, I would change my subject and go off on one of my rants and all that. It's harder to do that uh, now. Well, it's possible I could just leave this slide up here for the next 30 minutes and talk about what. But we'll do that. We'll just plan some other time to do that. But I and I really didn't want to discuss the same subject we discussed last week. But as you remember, if you were here, we didn't really get done with it. And so I thought, well, I'm at least going to finish my basic thought without hopefully without being too repetitive in the process. There there have always been and some consistent debates, both in religion and in, in the broader sense philosophy down through time. Things that are consistently discussed from either an angle of the secular or even uh, Greek philosophers, secular scientists, and then in religion between Catholics and Protestant and various Protestant denominations, there's always consistent things that are discussed. We just don't always connect them. As I mentioned before, this debate about predestination is not just a religious debate. It's a scientific debate. Are you predestined to be and do what you do by your genetics? Is it determined by your genetics? Is it determined by your environment? What makes you do what you do? Now, secular science, so-called, has decided that, yes, it's true, you're determined. And they argue about whether you're you're predetermined what you're going to do by your environment or whether you're predetermined to do by your genetics, but they all believe, well, not all, but the general consensus by so many people, especially prominent people, is yes, it's all predetermined. And we can determine, look at you and your background, we can say what you're going to do, and we make all these predictions. So it's you're locked in. They may discuss whether it's because of nature or nurture. And the same thing happens in religion. You know, either we're predestined by original sin or by total hereditary depravity, but we're predestined. Or they even have it now that God's Spirit controls everything that happens on the earth. So this is the kind of crazy person I am. I'm driving along the other day, come to a four-way stop. And... Uh, one car and I get there pretty close to the same time. I mean, it was split second or second or two, maybe difference. I think I was first, of course. But since I didn't know whether, what he thought, I just kind of, I'm one of these people, I just waved him on, you know, so he went on through. So I thought to myself, I wonder if according to, according to the Presbyterian Catechism, that incident was predetermined before the worlds ever began. The fact that he and I would arrive at that particular stop sign in Port St. Lucie on this date and time was predetermined. Everything that has ever come to pass, the catechism says, has been predetermined before the beginning of time. And it was even predetermined that a person like me would think through this, think I'm thinking through the process and wave them on. It was predetermined that I wave them on. And then when you get to analyze this more closely, perhaps I sent him to his death. Because of that split second, he goes to the next intersection and is killed in a car accident because of the timing of me sending him on. Or maybe I spared him from death by waving him on. But in reality, I didn't do either one because God predetermined everything before it ever began. What do you think about that? That's what the catechism says. So it applies to everything in life that way. And uh, this has been the debate. Are you pre- 
Was this fellow that shot up all those children in Texas, was he predetermined to decide to do that on that day? Is it his genetics or his environment? Or was a gun manufacturer to blame for that? Was the police chief who made poor decisions apparently, was he to blame for that? Just who is to blame for those things? How is that going to work out? Or is there any blame at all? If, it's all? if we're all just here and we all are nothing but dust in the wind, what difference does it make anyway? As Hillary says, we'll just quote Hillary. Might as well get that right out in the open. What difference does it make at this point anyway? If we're all just dust in the wind. Now there are similar debates, although that's way off on the end of the spectrum. There are similar debates about being a Christian and, and what the gospel does to people and how people change. If you go into the study of psychology, of course, this is the big issue in the end, especially any kind of practical psychology is how can you change people? How how do people change? Do they change? And can they change? I've been reading in this this business going on in the Southern Baptist Convention this week about the release of a, of a sexual abuse report. Uh, I think since about the year 2000 or more, they've been, I know it's 2000 cases Thing going on for a long time. They finally released a big report. All these famous preachers and pastors and churches are all in, in, all implicated in either abusing uh, women and children, or they're uh, implicated in, in excusing in some way this behavior. And so it's just rocked the whole thing, Protestant world, and so forth. One of the things I read about it from some, you know religious person pontificating about it is that uh, it was a female in this case she was saying well of course we all know that in the end these people can't ever change they're never going to change no matter what we even if we convict them they're never going to change no matter how long we lock them up they're never going to change and she know how does she know that well that's the popular thing to believe for one thing and you arrive at that conclusion based on your view of psychology and whether people you know, whether what you think about human behavior, and if you're involved in secular psychology, do people ever really change? Well, they can't change if their environment and their genetics predetermine everything about them. This is the problem with with predetermining things or, cal- or the predestination. Is it sounds like a good thing? I can't help what I do because it's been predetermined. But then it locks you into that. And if you find yourself overcome with desire, uh, a sexual desire in a certain situation, what are you going to do? Because it's been predetermined that you would be this way and you can't ever really change. Unless it's predetermined that somehow you would change. Now here's the problem I have with, and I'm not taking a position on some of those things. I'm saying I do believe some people can change from that. And I do know this. As a preacher of the gospel, I believe it is my job to try to change people from that behavior. And I believe everybody deserves the opportunity over a period of time to be able to change and to repent. They have a choice in the matter. I, I believe the scriptures teach they have a choice in the matter. And it's my obligation as a preacher of the gospel to try to bring the word of God to bear upon them so that they will change from those behaviors, good or bad. I mean, of all those wicked behaviors, male or female Adult or child, they will change what they really are. I believe that's the point of the gospel. Without that point, the gospel doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If it's all been prearranged, what is the point of me going out to the world to preach the gospel to anybody? If it's all been prearranged, God's already determined everything. There's no motivation. There's no, there's no reality 
in the repentance or the rejection that goes on. And I believe God is interested in both things. When, he, when the gospel is preached, my understanding of the word is it's a real live event. My grandfather, we'd make, me and my brothers would watch sports. He said, ah, you boys believe everything you see on that TV. Say, we watched this game last week. You're watching the same game you watched last week. You know how it's going to end. They all, it's the same game. This is my grandfather's view of TV and football games and baseball games. It's the same game. You all know how it's going to end. Well, it is true. It is the same game in a way. But is it really the same game? Are they just replaying the same tapes? And then the guy comes along with a little red light, shines your eyes, you forget the game, they play, play the same tape next week. <laughs> or are they actually live events that are taking place and where there is an actual possibility of a different outcomes that take place? Most of us, I think, being reasonable people living in the real world, we understand that these are live events and it is possible for the outcome to change, depending on the circumstances of the game and of life. Well, what's different about real life then? I think this is a live event right here. And the Word of God is being taught to you in some fashion, or, or the other influences of your life around you, your friends and family, things that have happened in your life are now playing in your mind. And it's a real live event, and it's possible that you can change. You can walk out of here saying, I'm done with that. I'm not going to fool with religion anymore. I'm done with those people. I'm done with God. Was that predetermined I would knock this plant over today? It's, it's feeling like it's putting close to them. I'm going to back away a little bit. Or you, you, the same thing might come to bear on a different person in the audience and they say, I need to get my life straightened out. There's a judgment day coming. I need to make sure that I'm right with God. The word of God can bring about both results. Some people walk away. Some people come to God. It's a choice. And God's interested in that choice. It's a live possibility today and every day that that would take place. Now, if I didn't believe that, I can assure you that I would not have been a preacher. Have I been deluded all this time? Well, maybe. But the debate then is, in the end, what difference? Do you, do you have anything to do with what happens to you eternally? Does it make any difference? Are you the same person you were? Before you became a Christian? Are you the same person you were before you repented? Paul says this. He says, in speaking about his own life, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been put to death, a shameful death. I've been put to death. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There it is. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying, some people take this to mean that once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, in the process of becoming a Christian, God has predetermined before the time began that he's going to save you as opposed to that person. He's going to save you. And that at a certain day and time, he's going to come in with his spirit and overwhelm your, your will your will that once wanted to do wrong things, he's going to overwhelm your will and overpower you with the Holy Spirit and suddenly you're going to be changed and want to do the right things now. You used to want to do bad, Holy Spirit's going to come in and change you in some fashion and they argue about how much and how that happens, but then you're going to want to do what's right and you will not sin again. And if you do, you can't ever be lost when this sin happens again. This is the change. This is typical Protestant belief. 
Is that what Paul's saying here? It doesn't sound like that when you read the context. It sounds like, yes, Paul has been invaded by someone else. His spirit has been invaded by the spirit of Christ that lives in him. And what lives in him about Christ is Christ's death, his crucifixion, a shameful death that brought about an irrevocable change in Jesus Christ. He now became God, man and God permanently, and he became different. And God exalted him because of that humble, that humiliation and death, changed him into something different. So this is what he's saying. I don't want to live like I used to live. I want to be different than I was before. And I'm going to try to do that. And yet we see... He says the same kind of thing. We talked about this last week over here in First Corinthians, uh, or Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation or new creature. Old things have passed away; all things have become new. What can that mean? Does that mean that once a person becomes a Christian, they never sin again? They're a new creature. They can't sin anymore. And if they do sin, it just means they never were a Christian in the first place. Is that what it means? If so, there aren't any Christians and never have been any Christians. I don't know a single person, and I've been alive a while now observing people, who claim to be a Christian of whatever their experience from them was as to how they became a Christian, whether they come in a Pentecostal experience or experience of baptism, whatever it may be, or experience of faith only. I don't know any person who claims to have come to Christ who from that point on never sins again. And so, if you're going to take the position that once you become a Christian, old things have passed away, you no longer sin, no longer have any desire to sin, I maintain there aren't any Christians, never have been any Christians. Because it's never been true that people become a Christian and never sin again. Never want to do what's wrong again. In fact, Paul himself makes the point in Romans that the things he wants to do, he thinks he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, the things he does sometimes. The debate is whether this is before or after being a Christian, but I don't think it matters at all because Paul isn't making that distinction very clear there. I think it still remains true. And I was baptized in 1966, April 22nd. So whatever that passed, what anniversary just passed here a month ago for me, a long time ago, I was 13 years old. That makes me sound... That makes me sound almost 70, doesn't it? Uh, a big change took place in me at that time. Has that change been in, a, been in effect every day since then? Yes, it has. It was a change. Did I live like that every day since then? No. Did that change in my life affect me every day? Yes. Even when I was doing wrong, Christ was living in me to stop me from doing wrong, to reverse that change in me. He was working in me even as I sinned. He was working in me, in my heart, through his word. And I can tell you this, I don't think it's just me. When I was doing wrong and when I do wrong, I stand condemned. I'm condemned by the word of God. I'm condemned by the word of God in my heart. I know it. I try to hide it. I try to obfuscate it. I try to blame other people for it. But I know that I stand condemned because I'm not doing what I said I was going to do. I'm not a new creature. I'm not acting like a new creature. So yes, I became new, different. 
And that process, but it began instead of a state of, a state of being that was never revocable, it became a process. Paul even tells them, do you not know? He tells these Christians here, uh, in 1 Corinthians, I don't think I can get it to do something here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't be fornicators, idolaters, nor homosexuals. Don't be these things. Because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me ask you something. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters or homosexuals. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. If they had been saved by the only by the power of the Holy Spirit, acting on them even against their will and saving them, why would he have to say this? This makes no sense. About them being deceived. Well, I thought if you had the Holy Spirit, you couldn't be deceived. Well, well, he says you can be deceived about this. So these people who are, were Christians, these Corinthians, could be deceived about sin itself, much less sinning. And he goes on to tell them, as such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Those are not meant to say that now that you've become a Christian, nothing bad can ever happen again to you. They're trying to tell you things have changed. You need to understand who you are. You need to let the power of God help and assist you in living this life as a Christian. And I say this, part, part of what, I'm going to move on here, but part of what I'm saying is really for the benefit of those who are not Christians today. It, it may benefit some of you who are. But I think there is an idea that people look at Christians and they hear what they hear from especially Protestant teaching, maybe some others, and they think, I can't become a Christian. For one thing, i got to get overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, and that hadn't happened to me, so I can't be saved. And they feel lost. Oh, and they don't think any hope can happen. They don't think it can ever happen to them. And secondly, they think, well, I can't be that way. I know me. I'm going to probably stumble and fall. I'm weak. I have these desires that aren't right. I still want to do those things. And so they hesitate. But what they don't take into account in this is, that when you become a Christian, there's going to be a change of state. And the state of, it's a state of mind. It's a state of understanding that takes place. Oh, I, I realize these are true state, true changes of state in the sense that you were dirty, now you're washed. You weren't sanctified. You were doing whatever you wanted to do. Now you've been set apart to be used by God. You weren't justified or correct. Now you are. What that is is an incentive for you to understand you've got to stop sinning and you got to keep from sinning. And you'll have power to do that. You will have power to do that if you decide to. Where does it come from you? No, it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Now, there's where the Holy Spirit enters in. You will have power from God to overcome your sin. It won't be easy. It won't be 100% all the time. But you'll have that if you understand I've been washed. Part, part of the shame that a Christian feels when they do sin is because they know they've been washed. And now they went right back out and got dirty. They, they will also feel shame and understand that I was once set apart to do what God wants me to do. I was sanctified. I was made into something that was supposedly to serve God. And now I've gone off and done whatever I wanted to do. And it'll draw you back. It'll make you realize what you want to do. He says in, in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. We can read, people read this verse and they don't seem to understand the, the background of this, among many other things. 
Is Paul saying that it, since you became a Christian, it's impossible for you to take your body and join it to a harlot? Is that what he's saying? You can't do it? You physically, Holy Spirit won't let you do it? You're just going to have this overwhelming desire not to ever do that again? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you can do that, but you shouldn't do it. There's a difference between can't and shouldn't. I can jump off a building without a parachute. I, I shouldn't do that. You can go join yourself in immorality to a harlot. You shouldn't do that as a Christian. So yes, you can sin, but you shouldn't. And he goes on to say then, flee sexual immorality. Who's he talking to here? People of the world? No, he's talking to Christians. It is possible for you to go back and do the things that you know are wrong that you did before you were a Christian. Go back and do those things again. But what this lesson is about is the fact that you don't have to do that because of an understanding that you have. A change has taken place in you. And it's not an insignificant change. A fundamental change in identity. I should have talked, should have named this something about identity. Because that's the, that's the big word today. Identity. You know, who you define yourself as. Who do you define yourself as? People say, I identify as blank. Some people say, I identify as a chandelier. I want to marry my goat friend. You know, whatever. Because I identify as a goat today. Whatever it may be. Who do you identify as? He says you should identify as washed and sanctified and justified. That's who you should say. That's who I am. Maybe I used this illustration last week. I don't know. Can't remember. I think I mentioned that when I, my children were growing up, I remember tell, I remember specifically talking to my sons about this. I said, when people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Tell them you want to be a father and a husband. If you want to tell them something. Not an engineer, a scientist, a veterinarian, a school teacher. Those are just ways you make money. I want you to define yourself in a bigger and better way, a Christian. I want you to identify yourself by something much more profound and deep as to who you are and your character. And I think we should all do something like that. You're not just a secretary or an IT person. You're, if you're a Christian, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. When you begin to associate this in your mind, it gives you power. You are not your own. That's what this means. You're not your own. It may feel like you can choose who you what you want, and you can choose to do, but you're not your own to make that choice. You belong to Jesus Christ. This is the basic meaning of the word Christian. You've heard me talk about this before. There were, the slavery was the background of this word Christianos. When people asked who they were, they would say, I'm a man of so-and-so, Ianos. And they would add the Ianos to whoever their master was. I'm a man of, uh, you know, of Aristarchus. And they would add that word, that suffix to the word. We are men of Christ. Men and women, of course, I'm obviously including all humans. We belong to him. We are not our own anymore. So we, we need to identify as that. And, and that means, if that's true, you better not go around as a man of Christ and be seen doing that over there because that's going to bring shame to your master and people are going to wonder, do you really belong to that master if you do that kind of thing? Because they know the master. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So, in Christ, your fundamental identity has changed. 
your whole new you. I think new Christians sometimes feel this, at least for a while, then it fades away. Because we're overpowered once again by our own desires. Changing what you want to do is, is not an easy thing to do. It can be done. And I think that is probably a change that's taken place in me over the last, it's a shameful thing to say, it took 45 years or some of this to work, but a change in me and what I want to do. My, my grandmother, <laughs> say, I'd tell her, we talk about something, I'd say that she's like the wisest person I've ever met, my grandmother was, and my mother's mother, and I, I'd say, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to take out the trash. Well, she would say, yes, you do. You, do, you want to do it more than you want to get a whipping, don't you? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah. I'd say, well, then you want to do it. What she was trying to do is get me to change my desire. And when you change what you desire, over time it'll change what you do. It'll change the attitude with which you do it. It isn't a chore for a Christian not to be intoxicated. Not, not in the big picture, not in the long run. Because we have so many other things that bring us joy and contentment that intoxication will eventually seem so shallow and pointless. It isn't really a chore. It isn't a chore to stay faithful to your wife or husband over many years. I have people, and I tell friends in, in my hobbies, well, I've been married for 47 years or whatever. Is that right? 47? Yes, 47. She thinks. That's why I love her. I think. I mean, when you got a woman, fellas, that you can buy her a toothbrush for Christmas and she's happy, you did well. Amen. Okay? You did well. Now, it's maybe a little more to the story than that. And we bought some used chairs from an old consignment shop the other day and I hauled them home from Georgia. I love that. She wondered, she was surprised, but I shelled out the money. I shelled out my money. That isn't true. But I said, sure, because... To get them new would cost a few thousand dollars. Instead, they cost a small few hundred dollars even there. And the best part is, she's happy. So, all right. Anyway, where was I? Is it a chore to stay faithful to your mate for many years? People think it is. My friends say, one woman, 47 years? How can you do that? And I would say to them, you don't know her. You don't know her. That's why you don't understand that. Can we not say that about our master? How can you do all these things? Well, you don't know my master. You don't understand him. But secondly, the benefits that I derive are so immeasurable. In every small detail of life, the benefits that I derive from that are immeasurable. And therefore, even though at times people get tempted, it can become, it can become over time, Easier and easier and easier to say, no, that doesn't interest me anymore. That does not allure me. It may be appealing, but it doesn't allure me anymore because the benefit. If you don't have that understanding of who you are and who you belong to, you, you probably won't make it. And I get, read you this little quote here, this little story from Augustine. I, I said bad things about Augustine in our Bible class. So I'll give you something good for him. He was a smart man. Lived back in the late 300s, early 400s. He became the father of what we call Roman, we call Roman Catholic theology. 
One day, not long after his conversion, Augustine was walking down, and he had been a pretty worldly person, lots of concubines and girlfriends and prostitutes. One day, not long after his conversion, Augustine was walking down the street in Milan when a prostitute he had been involved with in the past called him, Augustine, it is I. He turned to her and replied, yes, but it is no longer I. I think that's, I just think that's a powerful statement. It's one that we should let sink into our hearts about being a Christian. And I want you to understand if you're not a Christian, this can happen to you. The things that you don't like that you do, your temper, your other bad habits, your immoralities, the things that you do that you're ashamed of, you can one day come through the gospel, through the power of God, you can one day say, it's no longer I. Not I'm the living. So when you, and then when you do good things, when you do things that are well or to be praised, you will say, that's, no me, that's not me either. That's what Paul was saying. Because I only do this because of the power of God, not because it's in me, because you know what's in you. It is no longer I that lives, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. That's why Augustus could turn, could turn away from this temptation. And I guarantee you there's a temptation that's associated with that. So Paul says in Colossians, therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness. Here he goes again with all of these things that you can do with your body. Passion, evil desire, these things in your heart. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He's talking about all people there. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. At one time you lived in these things. This is who you were. This was your identity. Now you've been washed, and he says, I want you to put them to death. Wait a minute. I thought when I became a Christian, all that would go away. All those desires would go away. I would, I would never be able to sin again. That's not what this says. This says you shall have to put them away. Part of what, what God wants to see in you. Just how serious are you about this? But you, now you yourselves are are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put away off the old man with his deeds. You put him off, so therefore you have to stop doing what he would do. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit put him off and you can never be tempted again by this. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created. Renewed in knowledge. This means that as you grow, you keep getting renewed. Have you ever heard the, the thing that every seven years, every cell of your body is regenerated and you become basically a new person? That's one of those things I've heard since I was a kid and I just don't know if I believe it. But maybe it is. How, how, and existentially, well, how are you the same person? If every cell in your body has been, has been killed and put to death and you've got new cells, how are you the same person? Well, we are the same person. I went back and saw all these people I hadn't seen in 50 years a couple weeks ago at my high school reunion. And I could look in their eyes and say, yeah, they're the same person, good or bad, same person. But they didn't look the same. I told one of them, I could have run you over on the street and never knew who you were. And he said, I probably deserve it. I said, well, that may be. But, but the fact is, are you the same person you are? You're being renewed. In Christ, he's saying, it isn't a one-shot deal or a miraculous thing that's beyond your power. 
to have any influence over. Oh, some things are beyond your power. See, the trouble, the thing that's missed in so much of this religion is that God does his part in saving men and men have to do their part in saving themselves. They don't save themselves. They can't save themselves. Even their desires are perverted oftentimes. But God gives them the power to do something here. If if you can't do anything, how can you obey verse 8? Put these things off. If God does all of that, why does he fool me by saying that I need to put them off? Why is he playing a trick on me with words if he does it all when he tells me to put it off? The Bible doesn't make sense. Read that way. I have a part in this. You have a part in this. And since you put off the old man and his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, this new man is continually being renewed as they are. This is a present tense word. is continually being renewed. So yes, you you might come partway today and you'll come more tomorrow. This is the hope. So you aren't the same person. The question is, are you living like the same person? That's the question. And many Christians need to answer that truthfully to themselves. You become a Christian Christian, and now you're still living like the same person. Paul asked the question in Romans 6. I'm going to wrap this up here. How shall we who died to sin live any longer? Shall we continue to sin, he says, that grace may abound? Certainly not. God be, uh, uh, God forbid, the King James says. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, we can live in sin, but we shouldn't live in sin any longer if we become a Christian. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, as Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So here's a signal event. The event of coming to Christ initially and being put to death in the act of baptism, just as Christ was put to death, and buried in the tomb and raised up again in newness of life, a different kind of creature than he was. A different body. We're buried in baptism and raised up to be a new creature. That's a signal event. That's a beginning event. That's an important event. That's the washing. That's the sanctification part of it anyway. And he says, now you ought to walk in newness of life. And I've met very few Christians who had any, I knew very well at all, who didn't really want to do this initially when they were baptized. Want to do what was right. And that might last for a while, but then it fades away because we lose track of who we are. Our old old friends, old places, old circumstances call back to us. We react the same way that we did before to the things around us and we get called back. He says, don't do that. And so it goes on to say in verse 15, the same chapter, do not present your... Here's another active command that you can do and you should do or should not do. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. The members of your body do do what's wrong. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What do you mean? Sin shall not have dominion over you. Does he mean since you're a Christian, sin can't have dominion over you? Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. That's how it's presented. That once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit then prevents you from sinning or prevents you being one to sin. And so sin can't have dominion over you anymore. You can't sin once you become a Christian. That's not what this says. This says, shall not 
Doesn't have to. Does not have to have dominion over you. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you do obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So here it is. Who do you present yourself to? Who makes that choice? You do. With the help of Satan or with the help of the Holy Spirit, you make that choice. So I didn't even get to the main thing I want to talk about this morning. We're not going to do this again. But can we kill sin by our own strength? No, the answer to that is no. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We cannot kill sin by our own strength. I don't think that's what Paul is preaching here, nor nor, uh, that's not what I'm teaching. So we have to be focused if we're going to beat sin and be a new person, not live the old way, but be this new identity. We have to be focused on on God's word. Okay, He says, I hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have to also be focused on prayer. Being connected to God daily, all the time, continually connected to Him will help us to be connected. I miss my wedding ring that got stolen. Because wherever I go, whenever I would go anywhere, it would connect me to my wife. It would connect me to her. I would see it on my hand. I didn't need a reminder, but it was a reminder. And it connected me to her. And prayer connects us to God. And in the same way, it keeps us faithful. We need the fellowship of other Christians. You need to be here. You need to be at other events where the Christians are. You need the friendship of other Christians or whatever aspect it is so they can encourage you. Some Christians will discourage you, but many will, most will not. You need their, their encouragement, their fellowship. That's what, that's what this assembly is about. He says in Hebrews, this assembly is to stimulate and provoke us unto love and good works. Exactly what you need. Exactly what we're talking about. And then you need to worship God. Actually worship, not go through the motions and, and complain your own mind about what's being sung or not sung or what's being said. You need to worship God, both publicly and privately, and then we need confession. We need to be willing to confess where we fail and let God strengthen us. And sometimes in the confession of our wrongs, we find the means to defeat the wrong again. Well, our time is gone. Thank you for listening today. I apologize for going so long. But uh, I... I do want you to consider this important, this important event and subject of becoming a whole new person. I confess that probably at times of my own life, this has not been on the forefront of my mind. It's just been something that's assumed. When you start off young in life, becoming a Christian, it's easy to drift away from that and not really take hold of it. But then the, then the important changes take place in your life and you begin to realize this is who I am. You need to make that identity change today. If you need to become a Christian, step out and do that today. God will give you the strength to have encouragement to do what you know is right to do. And then you'll be not only be able to feel like a whole new person, but you'll be able to live that difference in life. The world will understand. People around you will understand, but God knows. And then maybe you've walked and done like many of us have. You've walked the path of becoming a Christian, but you've failed and gotten so far away that you need to come back openly and let everybody know I'm coming back to the Lord. I'm going to do what's right. Can we help you today? You come right to the front row here and we'll help you this morning if we can. Let's stand and sing.